0: Hey, it's Stu at BitcoinFi, the cross-section between financial independence and crypto, and I wanted to share more about inflation and different ways to fight it. I wanted to share some lessons I learned from an NPR Planet Money podcast titled Price Controls, Black Markets, and Skimflation, the World War II Battle Against Inflation. So here's a quick overview of what the government did during World War II when inflation started rearing its ugly head. And I'll link this podcast in the show notes, this other podcast episode. The first thing that they did was they tried to get more Americans compliant with paying their income taxes by running ads featuring Donald Duck. And I'll link a video of this. This is kind of funny. I've seen these before. But uh, anyway, the more income tax that they get and the more people comply and pay their taxes, obviously the better it is for the federal government to finance a war. Okay. The next thing they did was they advertised and also made war bonds widely available to help fund the war. And this is where you lend the government money now and get paid back interest later. So they're promising they're going to pay you back. And those were a pretty good investment for people, it seems like. A decent interest rate, a decent return. So between these two ways, the government is getting money now to help fight the war, to help provide everything they need to for the armies and the navy and the air force and everything. But prices still continued to rise, and eventually the government started setting price controls or price ceilings on certain products instead of letting the free market decide certain prices. This only encouraged demand because companies couldn't make as much money on the products that they sold because they were limited in the price that they could list things at. So because they couldn't make as much profit, they kind of slowed production on certain things or they stopped manufacturing those items. And started making other things that they could make a profit on, or making more of stuff that they could still turn a bigger profit on. So, this like compounds the problem. The government says you can only charge, we'll just say a dollar for milk, and maybe to be profitable, they need a buck twenty. So, now they're going to stop making milk, and now there's a lower supply, which means there's a higher demand, which would drive the price higher, right? The other way that companies would get around things is they would lower the quality to cut costs so this is a bad thing one of the examples was they would sell horse meat or meat with extra bone basically stuff that did not meet the normal quality that was given before and this is called skimpflation so because they could only list meat at a certain price and couldn't turn as much of a profit they're going to give you a worse product and lower quality okay so this is bad and also they're cutting production so this leads to rationing so now more products are becoming scarce and now products are becoming lower quality and it's all getting very complicated so what happened is they sent these ration books to every American household containing stamps with ration points and created this complicated system of assigning ration points to specific products is kind of like a game that you played but I also think you had to like stamp stuff in your ration book to get a product but if you had stamped everything then you can't buy that thing so this is all kind of crazy but inflation is still going up so what happened next there were some black markets that popped up and started selling meat with free markets like out the back door basically uh not through the storefront or like butchers like right from the source or ranchers or farmers, or whatever. So there's these black markets popping up. And so what did the government do? They set up these offices for the price administration department to keep an eye on local stores and report non-compliance. Now there's a secondary issue that started with what's known as the wage and price spiral, okay? So the government wanted to hold the line on prices, consumption, and wages. Holding line on prices is the price ceilings, the consumption is the rationing, and then the third issue is the wages. So as for the wage and the price spiral, when inflation goes up your money doesn't go as far and so people start asking for more raises. I know that's what I did. I was offered a certain raise and I asked for more and I got it, kind of. It's gonna be delayed a few months but anyway I kind of got what I wanted because my money's not going as far and I brought this up. And so I think a lot of people right now are kind of asking for more money and if they can't get it, they're jumping ship, right? That's the great reshuffling, the great resignation. But this is a vicious cycle because when you put more money into the workers' pockets, then they have more disposable income where they can go and buy goods. So when they go and buy more goods, that creates more demand on those goods. And so the price of those goods rises even more. And so since inflation is going up since the prices of goods and services is going up more. What happens next? The people ask for more. Again, so basically companies will raise prices to cover the higher labor costs because everyone's asking for raises, which means that there's more demand again, more people to buy more stuff, and the prices rise more. Workers ask for more. Companies raise prices. So it's kind of this one, two, three. The prices go up. People ask for more raises, they have more money, they create more demand. The companies will then start raising the product prices to cover their higher labor costs, and and it just keeps going and going in this vicious cycle. So this was a time where there were more unions around, and the goal of the government was to get unions to agree to no strikes and also limits on wage increases, and they were pretty successful in that. Nowadays, it's a little bit different. Inflation is the job of the Federal Reserve. But this was before that time when the central government was handling it. Now there's a different entity entirely that's going to handle inflation instead of the central government. Now, people back then were used to being frugal since the Great Depression, but people got sick of all of this stuff and the government intervention. They started doing revenge spending. So what's the takeaway? Basically, governments are running huge deficits, and this is an advertisement for Bitcoin, which is a fixed monetary supply It's gone on so long, but at some point it cannot continue like this. I mean, I'm not an expert or anything, but at some point the debt payments are not serviceable and everyone's going to default. The interest rates are going to be too high maybe. And then the faith in the dollar goes bye-bye and you have to start over again. I mean, I have heard about modern monetary theory. Yeah, I don't know. I have my doubts on that. So I have a list of things that you can do and we can talk about these points one by one. But here's my list. Number one, be frugal. Be patient, consume less. Okay, that's number one. Number two, learn about hedonic adaptation and use this psychology to your advantage. Number three, buy hard assets like real estate, Bitcoin, maybe gold and silver. Number four, buy stocks in good companies. Right now, consumer durables and value stocks are good. Consumer durables is like toilet paper, condiments. Like everyone's going to still buy toilet paper. Everyone's going to still buy soap and shaving cream. So stocks like Unilever, Procter & Gamble, people are still going to buy car insurance so like Berkshire Hathaway, right? So consumer durables and value stocks seem to do well in inflationary periods. So those companies aren't really going to get hurt. But like if inflation gets too bad, people might not be buying the latest, greatest $1,500 iPhone. They might be buying the the new SE that is only $430. Or the old model, the, the uh, 2020 model now, should tick down in price maybe to $350. So because of iPhone is a want and not a need necessarily. Or at least the latest greatest iPhone is a want and not a need for most people. Now number five, ask for a raise but don't use it. You need to save that money and invest it. Number six, maybe monetize a hobby, create content, Listen to the Side Hustle Show. Maybe start a side hustle, okay? There's also a blog about this. Number seven, eliminate consumer debt. Credit cards will kill you if rates rise. They're already killing you, so you don't want it with higher rates. Number eight, you need to optimize your company benefits like your 401k match, your health insurance, your health savings account. Try to have those optimized as possible. Obviously, open enrollment is not for a while. And maybe number nine I would share is travel hacking slash credit card hacking, or bank account hacking, there's always offers where you can do some of these things, but this is a dangerous game for some people that cannot handle credit cards. You have to know yourself and know your tendencies in order to do this. And so let's break down some of these nine options. So some of these things play really well together. I had on here for number one, be frugal and patient, consuming less. That also ties in with hedonic adaptation, and we'll give a quick overview of that. Ask for raise, but don't use it. Now is the time to be frugal and patient, consume less. If you can delay a purchase reasonably, you should. So this is where things like Amazon has a checkout with one click, I think. And I think they even patented it. But don't do it. If you are putting together an Amazon order, you should let it sit in your cart for two to five days, I'd say. This is what I do. By the way, I don't have Amazon Prime. I am kind of against it because Amazon is a place you go to now for convenience and not for price it used to be a very competitive price that you're getting nowadays it's usually not but they used to be that way and that's how they just ingrained Amazon Prime into everybody and so I do not have Amazon Prime and what I end up doing is when I put together an order I will sit everything in my cart for a week or two I do the same thing with Home Depot. I do the same thing with a lot of places because you kind of get it in your mind, oh, I need to get this thing. And the problem with Amazon is it's so quick and so fast that you just impulse buy online. And so what I do is I add stuff to my cart, but I have this rule where I'm just going to let it sit there and wait. Unless that's something truly urgent or truly a need, I will just let it sit there and then in a week you know, you might forget that that you wanted that thing and and you won't end up spending that money. That happens for a lot of people, I'm sure. So, again, just being frugal and being patient, consuming less. Find ways to optimize, you know, buy in bulk. Uh, Now might be a good time, you know, I do have a Costco membership and we do buy things in bulk from Costco where we can get a cheaper per unit price. So that's one thing that we've been doing. I have this weird habit, but every once in a while, I will see things out on the curb on garbage day, perfectly good things. And I will see them when I'm riding uh, our tandem bike. I usually will ride my kids to school on a two-seater bike, and they love it. It gives them a good adrenaline rush before before the day starts, and they love decompressing after school on the tandem bike. Or I also have an electric scooter, But anyway, those two things, I will just say, you know, they save me gas and they give me a little workout because I'm biking up a hill every day and it saves me from waiting in this pickup and drop-off line. And the elementary school and the preschool for my kids, both are three-quarters of a mile, so almost a mile. Round trip, it's a mile and a half, and it's pretty hilly. But anyway, I ride the bike and I save, you know, like an hour of time waiting in line. I can be out and back in 10 minutes for pick up and drop off. And yeah, you might consider if you're remote or you have this option in your neighborhood or one of you stays at home or works from home, if you can start walking a mile to pick up your kid or start biking, you know, to pick up your kid or or something like that. That's not where I was going with this, but um, that's just one other thing that I end up doing. That I'm sure has saved me a lot of money in gas. And not to mention is adding to both me and my children's health. So what I was going to say though is I will see things on the curb because I am biking through the neighborhood. um, And I will go and pick stuff up off the curb. I've picked up a lot of things for the kids from like a little trampoline that we keep in the backyard, uh, teeter-totter, lawn chairs, I've picked up bikes and some of them are in pretty rough shape. There's a few that we've kept and used for our kids that were great. And there's a few that we found a charity that will accept old bikes and they'll fix them up and give them away for free to uh, people that need a bike in the community. So that's a really cool charity and I get a tax break for basically keeping a bike out of the dump and it gets fixed up and, and it gets reused. So things like that. I try to consume less and I and I do this stuff. I found perfectly good toys on the curb, uh, both inside and outside toys, things that I can clean up and fix up. I have found a few pieces of furniture that were perfectly fine as well uh, like garage shelves. Now you have to be careful that you're not bringing in bed bugs or roaches or something into your home, so make sure that you inspect very thoroughly and are very careful with this before you load something in your car and bring it into your house. But anyway, I've found quite a few things, and I can either fix them up and sell them myself, or I can donate them. So that's, uh, that's one thing I often do or look at, just kind of flipping stuff, right? Or looking for deals on the things that I need. You know, spend some time on Facebook Marketplace if you are going to buy something. For example, the, I mentioned that I will sometimes use the electric scooter that I have to take my kids to school. And what I ended up doing was the Segway Ninebot Max. I have that scooter. It costs $950 brand new. I really wanted one, but I did not just go out and impulse buy it. Instead, I checked Facebook Marketplace for about three or four months, and then I finally saw one lightly used, came up for $450, so more than 50% off of the brand new price. And I was able to pick it up and it's been great. I've put over 550 miles on this electric scooter. So it saved me a lot of gas. It saved me a lot of time picking up kids. And not only that, it's been a lot of fun. There are always deals out there. There's also a lot of Facebook buy nothing groups where people will just give stuff away, essentially. Okay, so hedonic adaptation is a very interesting concept. It's one that I love. There's been a lot of studies that have proven this concept multiple times over but it basically is just it's almost like a theory of relativity for your finances for your your life circumstances but how it works is pretty much everyone has this base level of happiness some people are grumpier than others some people are happier than others and you know I tend to be on the pretty optimistic happy side some people are always just going to be kind of a a downer or pessimist but we all have that baseline and so what they did is they studied people's happiness over a long period of time, and they kept track of some of their life events. And inevitably, some of the people, and when this was originally being studied, this happiness study, some people in the study won the lottery. And so just imagine, like, how happy would you be if you won, well, to say, $10 million? You'd be pretty happy, right? And what they found was Yes, these people were substantially happier for six months or less. And then they went back to the baseline. Whether they squandered the money or were able to soundly invest it and change their lives for the long term, I don't know. The studies don't really go into that. But regardless of whatever these lottery winners did, the point is is that they adjusted to their newfound wealth, to to their good fortune. And similarly some of the people in the study ended up getting paralyzed from the waist down. And you would think, wow, I mean, I, I can't even imagine how I would feel. That would be one of the worst things for me, that you're telling me that I can't run and ride bikes and play with my kids. You know, that would be pretty tragic to me. I would definitely hate that. You know, I, I'm very active. I like to ride mountain bikes and dirt bikes, and I want to do all these things. That would be a hard pill for me to swallow. Well, just as expected, whenever this happened to the people in the study, they became very depressed, very sad on the happiness scale. And surprisingly, or maybe not so surprisingly by now, if you can guess where this is going, they went right back to their baseline reported happiness within six months or less. So what's the point? It's all relative. I have a 2003 Chevy Blazer that I drive. Uh, very rarely, since I I do have the privilege of, of working from home, and I'm very grateful for that. I don't discount how fortunate I have been, and what makes me laugh is you could say that I have a relatively high net worth for my age, but I am driving this junky, well I guess it's pretty nice, I mean it's got some scratches and some dents, but it's a 2003 Chevy Blazer that I paid $600 for, because I was patient because I waited for a deal. And what do you know, one of them came along. And that's what I drive. And, you know, if I were to go meet up with a bunch of other 30 year olds, there's not a very good chance that anyone would have more money than me. But there's a very good chance that almost everyone would have a nicer car than I do. So that's just kind of the difference. So in regards to hedonic adaptation, if you took someone Well, to say me, let's just say that average me, I'm driving a 2003 Chevy Blazer and you upgrade me to a 2022 uh, Toyota Tacoma. Ooh, I would love that truck or a Tundra. You know, I would totally love that. I'd be pretty pumped. That'd be great. I'd be pretty happy. The thing is, is that I know I would become complacent with it. I would just go back to my normal happiness after about six months or less. And it works the other way around. If you have someone that's driving a Tesla Model X or Model S or, or a McLaren or a Lamborghini and you gave them my 03 Chevy Blazer, they're not going to be pumped on that, that change of scenery, that change in their vehicle. But they're going to get used to it after about six months to where it doesn't affect how they feel anymore. And so the whole point of this is just to make you realize that it's all relative. And it works up and down. We'll just take this hypothetical person, but you're working your way through college. You got nothing. You got a junky car, and then you finally get that job that you were after at, right out of college, and now all of a sudden you can afford the payments on a on a Honda Civic, and then you get a little studio condo, and then uh, you, you work your way up the company after five or ten years, and your, your loans are gone, and you're making better and better money by now, and so you upgrade to a nice starter home for your family, and you get that uh, that new car, and then you, you keep climbing the corporate ladder for 30 years, and hopefully by the end of the road, after all your hard work, you're sitting in a McMansion with uh, three cars that are all brand new and all payments, and, and uh, or maybe not, but you know, that's kind of like what Americans do, is it's just always upgrade, upgrade, upgrade. Well, I've come to understand that this is not how I want to live my life because it works up and down. We only tend to think up. Um, When I first got out of college, I did have a good job and I had no debt. And, you know, we bought this house. It was a five bedroom, three bathroom house. We didn't even have a kid yet and we bought this house. Okay. Nice house, nice neighborhood. We were very young to live in this neighborhood, especially as homeowners in my mid 20s. Uh, A $300,000 house, okay? But we had our finances in order, and it wasn't a big deal to us. And the house was 2,400 square feet. Anyway, I was in the middle of my job-hopping years, kind of, and I'd gone from a Fortune 500 company to a contract, and I was just getting recruited for a job across the country. And it was a substantial raise, a large relocation bonus, most of which i pocketed and um a sign on bonus and and we pulled the trigger and we moved to a lower cost of living area and we downgraded our life substantially we sold our nice house that we had put some money into and and we downgraded to a little three bedroom apartment less than half the space that we used to have you know and that's not counting like we didn't have a garage anymore we sold a whole bunch of stuff. We sold our Corolla, our nice Corolla, and we ended up moving. And then uh, we had one vehicle for a while because we lived right behind a grocery store. So we just walked to the grocery store every day um, so that we could carry back what we needed in our hands with our new baby. And eventually I got that 03 Chevy Blazer for 600 bucks. And eventually I bought a condo that we lived in that was, again, half the square foot of our former house. Of 2,400 square feet. We bought a 1,200 square foot condo. We put a little bit of work into that condo, updating it. And then finally, we bought a house again, uh, substantially cheaper than our previous home and 400 square feet less. And I've come to learn that I don't want a house that's more than 2,500 square feet. Our house now is like 2,060 square feet, you know, compared to our old house that was 2,400. We've still downgraded, and we've got a smaller garage too. Now that part bothers me. I definitely want to have a house with a three-car garage one day. But what I'm saying is that sometimes you have to go down to go up. Sometimes you have to downgrade your life now so that you can upgrade your life later. We are living in an inflationary period of time. This is one of those times where you should look. Used cars are selling at a premium. Could I get by with one less car? And get a scooter or a tandem bike or walk a little bit more because I live next to a grocery store. I want you to think about those things that you could downgrade in your life now so that you can upgrade your life later. Okay, so I've gone on enough about hedonic adaptation. It works up and it works down, but 99% of people only care about adapting to an upward plane. And I think it's important to realize that you can downgrade your life and make it less comfortable, make it less convenient, and still be happy. In fact, maybe even be happier. And not only that, but you can buy yourself more future happiness by having your finances in control. Okay, let's move on from that. That's a quick overview of hedonic adaptation. So we're going to talk about buying hard assets like gold, silver, Bitcoin, and real estate. A hard asset is just something that is hard to produce, something that is scarce, something that is rare. Because there is no easy way to increase the supply, hard assets are pretty good. Because what's happened to cause our inflationary environment is that there's been so much money created out of nowhere and added into the economy that that's why cars and homes and and other assets have gone up in value. It's because they're scarce. So the true hard assets are gold. You can only mine a certain amount of gold per year. You can only mine a certain amount of silver per year. Um, Bitcoin has a fixed monetary supply. Real estate, we're adding houses in the United States at about half a percent to 1% a year. So out of 140 million homes, we're adding between 500,000 and a million a year. And it's not nearly enough to meet the demand, because more than 500,000 or more than a million people are looking for those homes at this point. So anyway, uh, if you want to get into gold or silver, there's a site called Acre Gold, although I don't know that that's the best place to do it, because the government has a precedent of making it illegal to own gold in the past, and I don't know that I want a paper trail of these transactions saying that I own gold. So I think the better way is to find like a pawn shop or a gold dealer local where you can do cash for gold. And you're going to pay a spread. You're going to pay a premium on gold, like 7%. But in theory, it could go up silver as well. Bitcoin Bitcoin is what this podcast is about. And it is somewhat taking market share from gold at this time. And then if you want to invest in real estate in small ways... Um, You might not be able to buy a house. Obviously, there's a big barrier to entry into normal what you think of buying real estate is. But you can use sites like Fundrise, which I have used. I didn't totally love Fundrise, so I ended up pulling my money out. But I I do really like Streetwise. It's a private real estate investment trust. And they pay, I think, an 8.4%, basically a dividend, And I own like some of Panera Bread's headquarters. And I've really liked getting those checks every quarter. So that's one way that you can get into real estate. There's uh, a bunch of crowdfunded real estate. Yield Street is another one I've heard of. And I'll link these in the show notes. So anyway, that's uh, a few ways you can get into real estate. So moving on to monetizing a hobby. You got to be careful not to ruin your hobby. You got to still make it fun. But that's kind of what I've done with this podcast and my blog and uh, even getting into coaching now is I like talking about money with people and I like learning about money so I just figured I'm just gonna create content as I keep learning about money and uh, I think it's really fun at least it is for me and you know I've made a few referral bonuses here and there nothing serious at this point but it's uh, continuing to grow I also like the mountain bike that's one of my hobbies so what's something I could do why not set up an Airbnb experience where I show someone some of the mountain bike places around and basically how an Airbnb experience works is maybe someone is coming to my local area to see friends or family or to go to a wedding or whatever it is and they're getting an Airbnb. Well, you can also make an Airbnb experience and, you know, I know people that teach yoga Classes on Airbnb, they do like goat yoga on their farm if they live out in the country. Um, maybe I could do like a mountain bike experience and also give like the history of the state park that I'm at or the history of uh, the Civil War sites or, or, you know, any number of things, in the history of our town. So, things like that. That's one way I could monetize a hobby. Optimizing your 401k, you know, that's one thing. I have coached a lot of people on and I've saved people uh, hundreds or thousands of dollars a year, depending on who it is and how much they have, just by helping them choose funds. So I'll share a few examples, but um, I was talking with someone and they had a substantial amount and I was looking at the funds that they were in. They had like three funds that were all kind of like a large cap blend, kind of doing the same thing. So they weren't properly diversified. They didn't have any international funds. They didn't have any small cap. They didn't have any real estate. And so we looked at, well, how can we make this better diversified? And also, look at these fees on these funds. And it turns out that person was paying about $2,500 a year in fees. And so I gave them a little bit of advice and pointed them to some other funds, which they were able to swap out in their retirement accounts and now they're much better diversified but they're also saving 90% on their fees so I'm saving them $2,250 a year for the rest of their lives hopefully so that's pretty significant there's another person that I helped with recently where you know if they were to live another 20 years I've saved them about 10 or 20k in their retirement just just from fees and for that person, it was only you know four or five hundred dollars a year, but now they're only gonna have to pay maybe thirty dollars a year. So anyway, there's uh, things we can do just to look at what's in your 401k or what's what's in your IRA, and find a fund that's gonna lower your fees but does the exact same thing as what you already have. Okay, and then the last thing is maybe like travel hacking. I know the Chase Sapphire card. When you sign up and and get the Chase Sapphire, I think they give you I think it used to be a thousand, but it's six hundred dollars if you spend. But I want to say three thousand, but it might be five thousand in the first three months, and they'll give you six hundred bucks. So if you just spend on like your groceries, gas, and household items, two thousand a month, and you spend six thousand in the first three months of having this credit card, well, you're getting six hundred dollars. So that's a a good ten percent off of your spending in three months, and that beats inflation, right? So, at least at this point, at least the uh, government reported number of 7.9% as of the February CPI, Consumer Price Index. So that's one way, uh, the Chase Sapphire card. There's this other card that I've had in the last year, and we got it because it has 0% interest for like 18 months, so it's really good for consolidating your credit card debt, existing credit card debt, So we did a home renovation and we put like $10,000 on this card and just maxed it out. And we just finally paid it off. And what it does is it does 1% cash back on everything. But then it has like a rotating 5% back category. And so right now, January to March is grocery stores, fitness clubs, and gym memberships. And then April to June is going to be gas stations and Target. July to September is restaurants and paypal and october to december is amazon and digital wallets so i don't even know what that is oh digital wallets is anything that you buy through apple or google pay or samsung pay or garmin pay or whatever you have smart devices basically so what they do is they give you five percent back on these different rotating categories but in the first year of the card they match it so i'm at the end of my one year of matching so for this latest quarter Anytime I go to a grocery store, excluding Walmart and Target, Sam's Club and Costco, but like going to Publix or going to like Albertsons or going to some of these other smaller grocery stores, you're getting 5% back on the card. But then on your one-year anniversary, they're going to double it. So in the first year on that category, you're going to get 10%. So if you sign up for this card, April to June, you're going to get 5% back today on your gas and you're spending at Target and then in a year you'll get the other 5% so that could be a good way to save on gas and then July to September you're gonna get 5% that month on your restaurant spend and then the other 5% in the next year so I've got 273 dollars coming to me that's how many points I've already earned on this card with all the 5% back and And I'm waiting for my anniversary bonus to come back in pretty much any day now. And if you do sign up through my link, I have a referral link. And it gives you a $100 statement credit. So that's even better. It also gives me a $100 bonus. So that's a really good credit card. There's a few ways of using credit cards for this. But you have to know yourself before you get one of these credit cards. Obviously, you have to have a pretty good... Credit score probably at least 680 and up to get like the Chase Sapphire or the uh, Discover card. But those are some really easy ways like you just start hacking through these credit cards and signing up and getting bonuses. And I've been doing this for years. I've made thousands of dollars off my normal spending on credit cards. I'm not going to say that's what makes me rich. I'm not against it like Dave Ramsey. Um... I use credit cards all the time because the consumer protections on credit cards are so much better than debit cards. But anyway, that's just a difference of opinion. I don't have a problem with credit cards and just spending whatever, like some people do. So you really have to be careful and know yourself. Okay, I've gone on long enough. I am dedicated to helping you learn how to navigate this inflationary environment and make smart choices to help you get through it and to preserve your purchasing power and maybe even get ahead a little bit. So that's what we're going for. Remember that financial independence is doable, and I'll be back with you soon.